Blog Talk Radio. In a country barely towards a crucial election while facing a pandemic, a liar in chief, fake news, and murder hornets, this is the last. 100 days. All righty, guys. Welcome to the last 100 days podcast. It is Tuesday, August 4th, 2020. I am your host, Scott Fullerton, along with my co-host every Tuesday and Thursday, Mr. Brandon Carmody. We're counting down from the last 100 days until Election Day 2020 on November 3rd. We are at day 92 Joining us in just a little bit from the Victory Fund today, which provides fundraising and support for LGBT candidates running for public office, will be the political director, Sean Malloy. But first, let's dive a little news for you. Brandon, how are you doing today, buddy? Good morning, Scott, and good morning, listeners. Uh, did you say 93 days until Election Day 2020, an election which uh, marks historical milestones of significance I can't even underscore during this interview, Scott? I'm telling you, there's a lot of stuff happening in the next 92 days here. How is everything important? All the stories I'm seeing is you should be sleeping better at night now. How are you holding up? (laughs) Um, My housemates and I are continuously in contact about the situation. We are fully aware that we are just a mere 10 or 12 miles away from that ground zero. But um, all indications are that things have become much more peaceful that there is much more of a dialogue and conversation going on. Um, But I just want to be clear, these articles saying that the feds have withdrawn is not correct. They are still inside the courthouse. They are fully capable of coming out with armament if the situation were to arise. So it's a day by day, but I'm seeing signs of progress and that the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, has actually turned into dialogue, which would be, of course, the ultimate objective of any political movement. Exactly. Well, very good. I'm glad that it has calmed down a bit. I know it's been a tense week or so at least, so uh, glad to hear that's happening. And as you said, they're they're not gone. The feds are not gone, um, but they're definitely starting to get forgotten. I think people are are calming down quite a bit, so that's very good. What's on your hit parade today before we get into our special guest later on? What's the tops on your mind? Well, every so I, as I've been talking about with you on this show, I'm an avid viewer of cable news and I consume it from different sources. And as part of my homework assignment for your show for the last hundred days, I've decided to take in some conservative media. And oh God, talk about a hold your nose moment, by the way. <laughs> you know, whenever they say that about election, or wherever if people don't like one of the two candidates, it's kind of a hold your nose election. Um, watching conservative media really is stunning, except for the one thing you're going to be surprised to hear from me. There are people that are starting to make a lot of sense on Fox News, and that's when I really have to scratch my head and be like, it's got to be Trump. Trump has really got to be that bad and that twisted and have that much criminality for Fox News you know, shows on the regular to be making some sense. But don't get me wrong, there is still a lot of spin. There is a lot of conspiracy talk and things that are really not helpful in our current climate. 
Scott, can we go ahead and talk about the uh, president's continual attacks on the vote by mail? That seems to be the story of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. Did you happen to watch that, no better word, a shit show of an interview with uh, Jonathan Swan on Axios? Just that alone was enough to make your head scratch. But what do you got? Um, Well, Basically, during his presser yesterday, the president claimed to have the authority to issue an executive order addressing the expected influx of mail-in voting in the November election. And I have also noted here, he tweeted about Nevada um, indicating that he may file a lawsuit taking legal action against them, suggesting that mail-in ballots make it impossible for Republicans to win there. So uh, am I am I dreaming this? I mean, Scott, is this really happening? Is the president of the United States during a global pandemic, which has claimed over 154,000 American lives, really attacking vote-in by mail this openly where, without – you know, any level of transparency where it's clear that this is entirely political and he knows that if we were to hold a fair mail-in election today, he would lose. I mean, he's, is the other side just completely got their blinders on? What is happening right now? I, I'm really scratched my head. I don't know if he actually is doing it just because he knows he won't win uh, if everyone's allowed to vote by mail or if he is just using it as a smoke screen to challenge the election, no matter what happens. I can't tell both side, both either way is kind of just embarrassing um, to see our leader, our free world doing this. But yeah, I don't know what to say, my dear, my friend. Uh, it's kind of uh, kind of craziness. I have not, I have not expected anything like this before. I mean, there's people that uh, have, have challenged different parts of an election before, but mail-in ballot where it's worked so well in so many states and just to, and then to admit on top of it that they'll lose if it works, I don't understand the logic behind it. Well, so The Atlantic has just put out a piece called Trump, Trump is Terrified of Losing, and i got to tell you, this is consistent with a lot of the reporting that I'm hearing right now. You know how you have – by the way, one of the beautiful things, I think we talked about this before, is that journalism and reporting has just thrived, just thrived during this three-year terrible, terrible era that we've been held hostage by this administration. So it's really great when these, quote-unquote, administration anonymous sources, I'm doing air quotes that you can't see on air, folks, when they <laughs> when they talk to reporters and they tell you what's happening in the Oval Office. And you can find out little things. Like, for example, right now, there's actually reports that the president of the United States is not really wearing a mask very often and that m- many of the White House staffers are not wearing masks. And that may make you scratch your head and be like, you're kidding, given the infection rates and the death rates and what's happening. People closest to the president are not wearing masks. But I digress from that. They're talking about his continual fuming, and it's reflected in the tweets. Have you noticed that, Scott, how what seems to be stewing in his mind is literally translates out into tweets? whatever he's raging about at that moment, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, he rage tweets better than anyone I know. And it's just kind of, it's, it lets in such a glimpse of how his mind works. If you haven't figured it out over the last three years, it really amazes me that you can't, uh, can't see the wheels spinning by now. It's just a transparency that uh, I don't think anyone should be missing. 
So in the Atlantic, um, one of the bylines here indicates President Trump finally seems to have noticed that he's losing the election. I've heard from multiple sources that <laughs> this is this should be no surprise. The White House's internal polling numbers are pretty much matching what you're seeing with the national numbers, which is showing Joe Biden ahead in several of those key battleground states, you know, in some places leading between an 11 and a 15 point margin. However, a lot of the top pollsters are warning not to count President Donald Trump out of this race. He absolutely has a viable chance. But if you were to kind of internally poll which everything you're feeling and in your instincts right now, and I know 2016 was totally gotten wrong, how do you feel right now, Scott? Do you think if the election was held right now, it would be like, you know, um, popularity contest for Joe Biden, but doesn't make electorally? What do you think? Well, I've said it on the show here, and I've talked about it with my friends personally. I think this year polls are a little more accurate than they were in the past. I think the silent majority that didn't want to admit they voted for Trump last time in 2016 are a little more vocal this time. I don't think that the polls aren't going to change. I think races automatically tighten in the last three months. So I think the race is definitely going to tighten, and I definitely think – there's always a chance that he could win again. Um, if the election were held today, I believe the polls. I think he would lose today uh, by, by the margins we're seeing. I think the polling is a little more correct this year. But it's three months out. We have 92 days left, and I don't think that these numbers are going to hold. I don't think they're sustainable. We haven't had debates yet. Um, that's a whole other topic of debate if we're going to have debates. Uh, I, we haven't had any October surprises that you and I have talked about on a previous show last week. So I think there's still a lot of room for tightening and for, uh, for him to even pull something out. But I, I'm confident right now. Let's put it that way. Well, we've been on the air today, Scott. I have a, uh, an email from Politico. The email title is Election Day Won't Be in November. So I want to highlight that. I know that we've been leading today by saying that there's 93 days to Election Day, but listen to this. I'm quoting from the email, so just bear with me. I'm just dissecting this raw. It says, it will be earlier. The pandemic wiped out campaign season, but it also accelerated the transformation of Election Day into election season. So basically what we're looking at is that there are 38 states, which are both red and blue, and the District of Columbia allow any resident to vote by mail or absentee without an excuse. So what we were talking about is that you don't have 93 days. There's going to be um, ballots cast in September and October. So election night, as you traditionally see with all of the TV pundits sitting around looking very tired, like they're on their 15th Frappuccino, <laughs> um, we should actually have <laughs> a lot of numbers in, in September, just even next month, we should have a lot of numbers. And as we noted, there were some primaries happening today in five states. So I don't think election day is election day. I think election day is today. It's happening in September. It's happening in October. Do you feel that we're going to have a pretty good read on it once the mass ballots start coming in and tabulated? Well, I think, I think we are, but I don't think they're even allowed to say what those are. I think they might be able to count them, but we're not going to find out those results. Um, Depending on exit polls, I don't know how strong they'll do exit polls. You can't really exit poll a mail-in ballot, right? You can't really exit poll. Like that. Uh, so we're not going to – it's not going to change anything um, towards this trajectory. But it does change the time limit that Trump has to turn this around. Um, everyone's saying that he 
he doesn't have 92 days to turn this around. If, like I said, if the election was held today, I think he would lose. The election is going to start being held in about 28 days when the first ballots go out September 4th in Pennsylvania and a couple other places. So he doesn't have the time to turn it around. But as far as getting results, I don't think we will actually get results until Election Day and probably for a few weeks beyond. Um, there is another huge story. Well, <laughs> I mean, what am I saying here? I don't think I've had enough coffee. They're all huge stories, but let's put them in priority. <laughs> um, th- there was an article in Vanity Fair that came out since you and I last talked that talked about how Jared Kushner's secret testing plan for a national strategy which was all held behind closed doors, evaporated, and they didn't go forward with it because they wanted to basically let infection rates spike in different states that were blue, that were run by governors, et cetera. And that story from Vanity Fair has gone viral and blown up into all the news agencies. So the pressure has been on for the president to come up with the national strategy. There are several people speaking to all the media outlets right now confidentially from within the White House saying that advisors are actually urging the president right now to come out with the national strategy. Right now, if I had to ask you, Scott, if if I had to ask you for rigorous honesty, does the president have a national strategy? No, he has. He's been asked for it for the past three months, and that's the problem. I mean, will there be one? Possibly. I mean, he's changed his opinion on masks, right? Even though we know he's not really wearing one in the White House, he, on three or four of the past pressers he's done, he has urged people to wear masks, which he never has done before. So will he possibly do a strategy? It's possible he will. We've been asking for it forever. We've needed one forever. Um, will I think it's more of a desperation for his campaign if he feels his campaign is gaining momentum, we will not see one. If his campaign continues to nosedive, then we might see one. Every piece of journalism, and sometimes I fall asleep with the phone in my hand, that's not good, but um, <laughs> and then you start dreaming about politics <laughs> and you wake up and you realize you're in 1984. But anyway, um, we're there every day. So here's a thought. The president's popularity, the president's poll numbers, everything at this point is inextricably linked to the fact that he is the incumbent. We are in this global pandemic, the likes of which haven't been seen in this country in a hundred years. So the reason that all of his advisors are urging him to come out with a national strategy is political. It, of course, the benefactors would be the American people if they're helped in any way, whether that be benefits, increased ventilators, increased testing. But if they come out with the national strategies, don't let there be any doubt about it. It will be political. But right now, what you have the president doing is just complaining about the flare-ups, complaining about everything, and he literally looks like the whiner-in-chief with no strategy. Uh, My take right now, Scott, if I were to make a prediction, if he doesn't change course on coronavirus, I don't think the American electorate is going to re-elect this man because the coronavirus is the number one issue in the country. Unless he gets a handle on this pandemic, it's it's not going to look good for him. It's just not going to happen. I agree with you 100% on that. So uh, do we have a guest joining us today? Yeah, let's go ahead and jump into it because I see he's on the line here. I'm excited to talk to him. Um, He's from the Victory Fund, which for those of you not familiar with it, uh, helped fund candidates. And, in fact, let me just go into what the Victory Fund does, and then we'll introduce our special guest today. 
The Victory Fund was founded back in 1991 by LGBTQ activists and donors who recognized the success of EMILY's List that attracted attention and support for women candidates for public office back then. I didn't know it, but there was less than 50 openly LGBTQ elected officials from across America at any level of government back just in 1991. So the founders understood that boosting our numbers in public office would be key to advancing equality. And in creating the Victory Fund, they set out to build a network of supporters who pledged to assist viable LGBTQ candidates endorsed by the organization. Now, just to show the success of that, from those 50 candidates in 1991, an unprecedented number of openly LGBTQ people ran for office in 2018, and the Victory Fund endorsed 274 of them, more than any time in their 27-year history. The Victory Fund invested more than $2 million to support the candidates from the U.S. Senate to local school boards, and 64% won election night. So Colorado made Jared Polis the first openly gay man elected governor of a U.S. state. America elected 10 openly LGBTQ members of Congress, and the number of trans state legislators quadrupled. So I'm so excited to bring on today, he is a Pennsylvanian through and through, hailing from Pittsburgh and graduating from the Pennsylvania State University. Prior to joining the Victory Fund, he was a director of LGBT engagement at the Democratic National Committee and worked to ensure that LGBTQ support for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign included having the largest and most diverse group of LGBTQ delegates in Democratic National Convention history. He also ran two congressional races, including the re-election of Congressman Mike Doyle in Pennsylvania in 2010 and Christian Cabral's 2012 race for District 10 in Virginia. Sean also served in Congressman Doyle's Washington, D.C. office and advised the Congressman on LGBTQ affairs, education, campaign reform, and judiciary issues. Guys, we've got an expert on the show today. Please welcome to the last 100 days, Mr. Sean Malloy. Sean, how are you doing, sir? Hello, I'm great. How are you? I am excited to talk to you. Brandon and I are always excited to talk about LGBTQ candidates. So uh, the Victory Fund is a great place for us to start. We appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. This year is even bigger than 2018 already. Brandon, what's on your mind? Uh, What do you want to kick off with Sean today? Good morning, Sean. Brandon with the last 100 days here. So there are 850 LGBTQ candidates running for office this year, which, as you noted, is a record high, and that includes several high-profile candidates with solid chances of being elected. Um, I noticed that your general candidate endorsements from the Victory Fund appear to have, I've counted up at least three primaries that are happening today. I'm showing that there's a Katie Dixon, who's running for the Kansas House of Representatives, District 49, Colton Myers, Washington House of Representatives, District 35, and Brad O'Connor running for the Township Park Commission. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your three candidates that basically have a primary ballot being cast today? What, uh, what can you tell us about those races and their relevance? Well, we actually have a, a lot more than that. Uh, we've got folks on the ballot in uh, Michigan, as you mentioned, in Washington, in Kansas, uh, as well as Arizona. Um, and we've got races from local councils and uh, you know uh, boards all the way up to u.s congress folks uh, we've got 
um, a U.S. congressional race in Washington's 10th district where Beth Doglio um, is running to become one of the top two candidates to uh, compete in November. And we've also got Dave Coulter, who was appointed um, the county commissioner uh, in Michigan and uh, basically the third most powerful uh, position in Michigan, Washington County. He is running in his primary today to, for a four-year term. Uh, we've got uh, also John Hoadley running in a primary who just got added to the DCCC's red to blue list. So we've got uh, oodles and oodles of candidates. I can't go into all of them, but those are some of the highlights. That's amazing. I love hearing that. What are you guys' thoughts of um, – we're going to talk a little bit about mail-in later and everything, and Pennsylvania is having the grand experiment supposedly today of mail-in. Uh, can you believe the controversy over it? It seems like it's pretty cut and dry. It's worked in Oregon, where Brandon's from, forever. What are your guys' thoughts on the mail-in process? It's, it is absolutely a, a um, you know, a solution in search of a problem, right, uh, the controversy around it. <laughs> the military has used it. California, Colorado, Utah, Oregon, Washington all have used it for years. Um, I think the, the issue is, is that uh, when more people vote, they tend to vote um, for, for, for Democrats, uh, you know, uh, and that's at least what we've seen so far this year and in the past. I think that's why the right wing has been really been moving uh, against uh, vote by mail, uh, which I think is just truly a detriment for civic engagement and our overall, you know, lowercase d democracy. Right, exactly. And I think uh, we talked a bit on the show yesterday that Nevada is looking to mail out absentee balance to every single resident of Nevada. And Trump basically laid it out yesterday and said, if that happened, the Republicans have no chance of winning and they're going to try to file a lawsuit, I think, today for that. So they're not even being coy about it. It's like they know that that's kind of the chances against it. Um, Brandon, what's your what's your kind of take on it from an Oregonian perspective? Um, we have had mail-in voting for over 20 years here in Oregon, so it is tried and true as far as a system of accuracy with very little voter fraud. And um, given the current state of the global pandemic that we're all experiencing, it's just practical. Sean, I'm looking at a few articles. Pennsylvania to pay for mail-in ballot postage in November election. I also noted here from the Inquirer, Pennsylvania's mail-in ballot problems kept tens of thousands from voting in a pandemic primary. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What's your understanding of sort of the hubbub or the different controversy over the mail-in ballot? What problems have occurred here? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's twofold. I think, uh, firstly, it was new. It was the first time we've ever done it. We actually implemented it earlier this year, right? It was a bipartisan measure that we, we pushed through uh, in the midst of uh, our primary uh, being delayed. And, you know, that's one of the biggest issues is a lot of election officials, they've never dealt with this and certainly not at the level um, at, at, at uh, the level folks participated, which was record breaking. And I think the other thing is, is about uh, expectations. Um, you know, people have been expecting uh, results on election night, right? Election night parties, those kind of things. You know, we've had races out where you are that have gone on for uh, a few days, if not weeks, when they're close because you're waiting for all the ballots to come in and actually be counted. And I think that one of the biggest issues that we're, we're seeing in Pennsylvania is 
we're being challenged. Uh, every single county is being sued right now um, by uh, the RNC and, and Donald Trump's campaign around actually counting all the ballots that come in. And, you know, that county-by-county county approach of whether or not folks are uh, counting ballots that come in with a postmark uh, or, or come in just a little bit after a deadline, right? A lot of the deadlines were actually before the Friday before, um, you know, that Tuesday, or at least that's what a lot of folks thought. There's a lot of controversy around that that I think still needs to be decided. And I think that um, two things need to happen. We need to make sure that folks know that this is still a safe uh, way to actually get out and vote, uh, but they need to get their application in so that it gets there on time and can actually not be challenged for getting there late. And that's what so many of the ballots um, uh, in contention are about is if they're postmarked, but they're not there by eight o'clock on election day, they're not getting counted. I personally disagree with that. And, and I think a lot of vote by mail states allow a postmark uh, to actually be the final determinant of whether or not it's counted. Um, but, you know, that's where a lot of that controversy lies, and we still haven't come to a full resolution there. I want to bring it back to the Victory Fund. I mean, your title there is Senior Political Director, Sean. Tell me about your your vision. What is your kind of purview for the organization, and what have you seen maybe change over your uh, time at the Victory Fund? Has the mission changed at all? What is your exact uh, – what are you trying to do there for your position? Yeah, so the political department's in charge of uh, the bread and butter of Victory Fund, which is getting openly LGBTQ people elected at all levels of office. And our mission is very uh, clear. You know, we do not do advocacy. We do candidates. I mean, get those candidates elected. Uh, our candidates have to be openly LGBTQ and fight for the full diversity of the LGBTQ community. Uh, they've got to be able to uh, win. So they've got to be a viable candidate. You can't just say, I'm running. Uh, and they actually have to uh, have a fundamental belief in the right to privacy um, and reproductive freedom. And so those are endorsement criteria, and we have a board. And so the political department helps uh, get the applications from the hundreds of LGBTQ candidates that are running and present them to our endorsement board uh, in order to have them uh, decide whether or not we're going to support them. And we do not endorse every LGBTQ person that runs we endorse the ones that meet those viability criteria. And in the last three years, we've increased the amount of LGBTQ people uh, elected in the United States by hundreds, um, including some record-breaking races like Danica Rome, in the first trans state legislator in the country down in Virginia in 2017, uh, the Rainbow Wave uh, in 2018, as you've already talked about, and some amazing key mayoral wins uh, last year in 2019 uh, such as the mayors in Seattle, Chicago, uh, Tampa, uh, as well as Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, we're just growing from there with uh, almost 900 LGBTQ people running this year. And I think we're going to break uh, the 300 mark. Uh, we already broke the record with 282 endorsements. I think by the time uh, our endorsements come to a close for 2020, we're going to be over 300. There's just that many amazing LGBTQ candidates running this year. That's amazing. And the caliber is so good. I mean, we're in an area, we live close by each other, and I was lucky enough to be able to interview um, Rosemary Ketchum, who was the very first mm -hmm. city councilwoman on trans city council 
woman on West Virginia, Wheeling, West Virginia, and just the qualifications and the passion for the people we have running are just so inspiring. I mean, we have some really good field of candidates, right? Uh, We have amazing candidates, and I think that that is uh, a product of what Victory Fund has been working for over the last almost 30 years. Uh, As you mentioned, when we were founded, it was hard to scare up a candidate to even step forward because the environment was so anti-LGBTQ. But because we have worked hard to almost, I hate to use the word normalize, but to normalize the idea that we as LGBTQ people can step up and run for office, I think we've now, the wave is crested, and we have a ton of LGBTQ people who are saying, I want to stand up, I want to represent my community, I want to fight for LGBTQ rights and more. And uh, I think that's why we're seeing so many record-level candidates in 2018 and now even more in 2020. That's awesome. Have you guys seen a cause and effect? Have we seen with this um, plethora of great candidates and a lot of them being elected, are we seeing is that why we're seeing laws changing a little more rapidly these days? Do, do you actually track that? Because you guys don't do the advocacy part, but are you guys seeing the difference these candidates are making once elected? Absolutely. And this is why it's so important that we need to elect LGBTQ people to almost every single body that exists in the United States. Uh, we bring a unique perspective and I think a level of empathy that a lot of other folks may not. Uh, we look at our communities and we know what it's like to be um, uh, a minority and not necessarily feel welcome. But we also know how to advocate and to engage folks who might feel that way in our community to help make sure that they are brought into the fold, that they are represented, and that we pass some legislation that's going to help uh, us all. And I think that that's something that we've definitely seen. When an LGBTQ person is in a state legislative chamber, we know anti-LGBTQ legislation decreases because it's a lot harder to look in someone's face and say, you're lesser than, you're evil, than it is to not have someone there and to stand at the podium and shout that out. Uh, We know when someone is there and in the room and at the table, they are actively stopping anti-LGBT legislation, and then, of course, helping pass pro-LGBTQ legislation. And uh, that is that has been true in almost every body that we've helped get someone elected to. Bringing that perspective and that fight is a huge part of our mission. Well said. Brandon, you have another question? Um, I do, Sean. I would like, first of all, <laughs> we're all in this shared uh, global pandemic situation, as we were talking about earlier, um, you've been working with the Victory Fund for a while. Do you mind if we ask how has coronavirus impacted the work or the working conditions that you're under, and what challenges has that presented to you in this, you know, six months on into this pandemic? Yeah, it's twofold. You know, we're an organization. You know, it, we're based in D.C. Our office has been closed, you know, since March. Uh, and so, you know, working remotely is, has its own challenges. Um, and then, of course, the economy has completely tanked. And for any nonprofit group, um, that has that has a, a, an impact, right, on the on the bottom line. Uh, but because we also center ourselves around candidates, no candidate at the beginning of the year signed up to campaign uh, in the middle of a pandemic, right? Our folks love to knock doors. They love to talk to folks. They love to show up to community meetings and forums and 
and share their viewpoints, uh, that's not happening, right? It's all virtual. It's all Zoom. It's all digital advertising, not door knocking. And uh, that, that's, a, that's a problem uh, for a lot of campaigns. Certainly some folks who were planning to run against maybe an incumbent who uh, has some name recognition but wasn't doing the work, they were going to outwork that incumbent on the doors uh, and with their volunteer base. It's a lot harder to do that over the phones and over Zoom calls. And so that's clearly been an impact as well. And then clearly the economy has impacted fundraising for those candidates as well. So all in all, it's been, uh, it's been rough, uh, but we persevere uh, just like those candidates. And we're still seeing some history uh, being made. Just, just a follow-up question. Um, so on a lot of election nights that I've been through, Sean, there is obviously get together, you know, get a room, uh, get a big conference room at the Hilton, some type of election night viewing. Are you doing kind of some Zoom calls or what will you be doing tonight for these primaries? Well, me and uh, our team will be tracking the races to see who, who wins and what results actually get called tonight. Um, I think because of vote by mail in Michigan, right, this is one of their first, it's similar to Pennsylvania, one of their first go-arounds with the level of folks participating. I don't know how many results we're going to get. Uh, same thing in Arizona, where there was a lot of early voting, but also a lot of absentee voting. Um, and, uh, you know, Kansas, I think we might get some races called tonight. But uh, Washington, we don't expect to, to hear for quite some time. So we'll be tracking those races, and we'll be, we have a text chain uh, that we, we kind of keep going through. Uh, and then obviously we're in touch with all the campaigns uh, to hear what they think is actually going on. Uh, so we can let the world know if, if history has been made uh, or uh, what the status of those candidates moving forward to the general election is. Talk about you talked earlier about the fundraising part. Talk about the victory fund. Like I said, you raised uh, two million dollars back in 2018, and everything's getting more expensive as we go on. How does the victory fund do their fundraising, and how do they kind of allocate these funds to the different candidates? Yeah. So uh, one of the things that we've held true to since our founding is that we've really been a bundling organization, and so. We've got a network of people and donors who really care about LGBTQ representation and understand that when we're in the room, we're going to help make sure that we're advancing our community. And so we also have that endorsement board I mentioned earlier. They all have a commitment to the endorsed candidates. And so they have a give yet that they help meet. And so of our endorsed candidates, they help fundraise on their behalf. Uh, And then we have some candidates that, are going to be a little more uh, impactful, right? They might be the first ever voice in their state legislative chamber or be a diverse voice that we've never had uh, somewhere. And those are our spotlight candidates. And so Victory itself uh, works with partners to uh, fundraise uh, directly for those candidates, but also directly donate uh, from our PAC accounts and then potentially engage in independent action to help make sure that that candidate gets over the finish line. And so uh, that $2 million number encompasses all of that. Uh, but the bread and butter is raising that money directly to the candidates through that endorsement board. That's amazing. I love that. And what in your years with the Victory Fund has been maybe your proudest achievement um, in elections? I mean, I'm sure you have some amazing stories in every state. But what stands out to you is some really hard-fought battles that were uh, victorious. Well, I, I have to say uh, that's tough, right? That's a, a tough uh, question. But 
the one that I've seen have the most impact and was the hardest fought, I think, was Danica Rome in 2017. Even folks within our own community didn't have faith in her, right? She had a contentious primary where she was running against a bunch of, you know, uh, straight, white, cisgender, right, professionals, right, those kind of traditional candidates. Um, but uh, she had a plan, and uh, we helped her fund her race, uh, and uh, she won that primary. And when she won in November, you know, making history as the first ever uh, transgender state legislator-elect um, we've just seen uh, her not only excel and fight for our community in uh, that chamber, but that has served as an inspiration to so many trans candidates who have stepped up uh, over the last few years. Uh, that moment, seeing her uh, win, I think has helped embolden trans folks to say, I can, I can serve. And so we've already quadrupled uh, you know, there's four uh, openly trans uh, legislators in the country now. I think we can triple that potentially this year. Stephanie Byers uh, in Kansas is on the ballot today. Uh, I think she's going to win her primary. And if she wins her um, general uh, in November, you know, she'll be a trans legislator in Kansas, uh, which, you know, I don't think would even have been thought of before Danica won. And so, uh, you know, don't tell all the other candidates, but I'm going to go with Danica. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, I would like to ask about Sarah McBride. Here's the familiar face that I just pulled up on the Victory Fund. It says that Sarah will be one of the first openly trans state senators in American history. The position she's seeking is Delaware State Senate District 1. Uh, Sean, what can you tell us about uh, Sarah McBride? Well, I've known Sarah for, for a while, um, and, uh, you know, I was at the DNC when she uh, spoke. You know, we got her uh, a hard-fought spot uh, to speak on the convention stage, uh, and she made history as the first trans speaker um, uh, at, at a Democratic National Convention. Uh, and so, you know, she let me know that she was interested in this seat, and she built a plan. And so I am very, very hopeful about her chances. She's outraised all of her opponents, uh, and uh, she is ready to serve. And so I think she's going to be victorious in her primary, and it's a pretty safe Democratic seat, so I think she's going to win in the fall. And I, I, right now I think she'll be the, the first state senator, trans state senator in the entire country. Very, very cool. And what, <clears throat> as LGBTQ community at large, what should we be doing to help support these candidates? What can we be doing? Um, where can we – is the, your Victory Fund website the best place to look for a plethora of all the candidates are running, or what's some of our resources in finding ways to support these LGBTQ candidates, Sean? Yeah. Uh, VictoryFund.org has all of our candidates, you know, VictoryFund.org slash candidates, actually. Uh, and you can sort them by state, by, you know, their uh, background, by their identity, the level of office they're running for. Um, and you can see who's running locally. And uh, you can help donate to them. Uh, and that's really uh, important as these elections move forward and in this COVID environment, as we've already talked about. And that's, uh, that would be a huge win. But then also talking about those candidates, sharing with your friends uh, those bundling links and helping uh, amplify those resources. And then, of course, right, you know, this is a tough economy, uh, you know, working to help those candidates uh, through volunteering. Uh, that's something that, that every LGBTQ person uh, who's interested in helping uh, can do as well. 
you know, get out the vote calls are going to be very important in a lot of these states that have vote by mail. And, you know, in places like Pennsylvania, ballots are going to start going out in September. So there's no there's no time uh, like the, the present in, to get involved and to donate to those folks. Um, and I think also, if you're interested in running, uh, let us know. You know, building the pipeline is a large part of our work outside of the, the election we're in. So we're looking at candidates for 2021, 2022, and beyond. And so, uh, you know, getting engaged with you, talking to you about that, making sure that you get trained by either our, our Victory Institute, um, our partner uh, organization, or by another uh, candidate training entity to help make sure that you're prepared, uh, that's another way that you can get engaged because we need to elect over 22,000 more openly LGBTQ people in order to meet the most baseline level of parity, which is 4.5%. And Generation you know, Z is identifying at like 12, 15%. So, you know, we've got a long, long way to go because we've only got 860 some folks currently serving in office. Even if all 300 of the folks we endorse this year win, you know, we're not even going to – we're just going to be a little over 1,000. So we need people to, to get engaged and support our candidates and then also step up to run. Well said. And talk about – let's talk about allies for a moment. Uh, we were talking on the show last week. Joe Biden has an excellent platform on his website on LGBTQ rights. Talk about some of the candidates that have really gone above and beyond – um, as being allies. Do you guys kind of get into that at all and kind of pair your candidates with these candidates, or how does that work at all? Uh, no, we're pretty mission-focused on LGBTQ candidates. You know, um, sometimes our candidates sure. are running against good allies, right, uh, in some of these uh, safer, I would say, Democratic seats, right? Everyone who, who dares step forward is an ally of the LGBTQ community, Um but, uh, uh, you know, I've got to say, um, you know, Joe Biden has been an ally for the community for quite some time now. Uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, did an amazing job engaging LGBTQ people in her presidential campaign. Uh, and I think, you know, looking as the convention approaches, I got to give kudos to Bernie Sanders for, um, you know, putting together a lot of delegates that represent the, the full diversity of our community uh, as well. And so, it's nice to see that level of allyship, even in the first year we had a viable LGBTQ candidate for the first time uh, in Pete Buttigieg. Right. And so, uh, you know, it's nice to, to have that. Um, I think the, the real allyship is continuing to be an ally, even if there's an LGBTQ opponent, um, and even if LGBTQ people are supporting the LGBTQ candidate. Uh, and not saying my support is dependent on yours. I think that's true allyship, and luckily we're seeing that more often than not. Very well. And that's my last question, then I'll turn it over to Brandon to wrap things up here. But uh, talk about the candidacy of Pete Buttigieg. I was lucky enough to have him on before he caught fire on my Left of Straight show, and uh, I wasn't expecting this as soon as we got a president with such a viable candidacy. Talk about the wind in the sails that had to bring to the community in general. And do you see more aspirations like that coming down the line? Uh, yes. I mean, you know, uh, we had Pete meet our endorsement criteria, right? If he had run for president and raised, you know, $100,000, we wouldn't have endorsed him. But he, he put 
together the campaign he needed to, and he raised the money. And we were Pete's first national endorsement. Actually did it in New York on the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. It was an amazing event. It was a really proud moment. And I think that we're going to continue to see the impact of that because we continue to hear stories of people of all stripes across all the country to say, I can't believe that that is happening. And we heard stories of folks feeling empowered to come out. And that's, I think, one of the most important things. When we have our candidates running, uh, it helps uh, show that there's hope for some folks that might still be in the closet and, and actually enable them to, to say, hey, I can get through this. There is, there is some light in the tunnel. And having someone run for president uh, allows that to happen for the country, uh, the entire country. And so um, we're happy that he was the first. We're happy to have supported him. We're glad he won Iowa where, um, you know, he's, he's a big supporter of Joe Biden, you know, and so I think we're all going to work to help make sure that Joe Biden gets elected, even though Pete didn't win this primary. But I think that he showed that there is a path for LGBTQ people. And I think we're going to continue to build the pipeline so that we have even more LGBTQ candidates for president moving forward. Brandon, you have any last thoughts you'd like to discuss with Sean here? Any last questions? Sure. Last question. So when we're talking about representation for the people, um, as of today, as of Tuesday, August 4th, 2020, the United States population is ranking in at 331,2651. That's if we're going by the data. So when we're talking over 331 million, um, basically where I'm going with this, there was a piece in Out Magazine two weeks ago titled Rainbow Wave 3.0, which was talking about the record number of LGBTQ candidates. I just want to ask, based on the data that you have, based on your gut instinct, do you think that you're going to see the rainbow wave in this election cycle? Yeah, I think I'm going to call it a rainbow tsunami because that's bigger than a, a wave. Uh, I think we're going to have – we've already had um, some major wins this year, uh, you know, for some safer seats that, you know, are, are the, the election is kind of almost a given in the fall. Uh, and so, you know, that includes probably the first ever black queer member of Congress, that, the first ever black and Latino member of Congress, uh, Rosemary Ketchum, as mentioned, the first you know trans person elected to public office in West Virginia, um, and uh, Kim Jackson in Georgia, who's who's poised to become the first ever state senator uh, in Georgia that's openly LGBTQ elected. And so I think it's going to be absolutely bigger than 2018, and uh, I'm really excited to work towards that over the next 90 some days. I want to wish you luck. You know, if everyone's interested in learning more, victoryfund.org uh, has all of our candidates. We'll be rolling out some more endorsements later this month. Uh, but we've got a ton of elections that people can track uh, at victoryfund.org and also on, on Twitter. We, we do a lot of updates on Twitter. Um, uh, on Like tonight, we'll, we'll, we'll post as soon as we know someone's won. That is amazing, and I'm so inspired by the work you guys are doing and all the candidates that are putting themselves out there and just being them true selves and working to better our LGBTQ community. Sean, thanks so much for all the work you're doing. Uh, thanks to everyone at the Victory Fund. This has been an amazing uh, interview with you, and we hope you'll get us some candidates to talk to over the next uh, 92 days here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, stay on the line for me, guys. We're going to take a quick little break here, and Brandon and I will be back to finish up the rest of the show in just a couple of minutes. You're listening to the last 100 days right here 
on the Leftist Straight Radio Network. That was our good friends, Jim, Liam, and Brendan from T3 Official. If you're not following them on TikTok, you're doing something wrong. That was a great interview. I always like uh, talking about our LGBTQ candidates. I think that the Victory Fund is doing some amazing stuff, and I'm glad we're able to have Sean on. No, that that's fantastic. And of course, uh, everything that we highlighted there and speaking with Sean about the historic amount of LGBTQ plus candidates that are running this election cycle and the significant importance, again, when you're talking about 300 million Americans and needing to have you have you heard this before, by the way, Scott, when they say, do you see yourself represented in films and television and you can flip through the channels and there might be like one show like Modern Family or something that has a gay couple? Um, our elected bodies, our Congress and our Senate is the same way. Like if you're going to be representing 300 million Americans, we need a significantly more amount of LGBTQ candidates in those elected positions. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's, you need fair representation across the board. You need, that's why it's embarrassing when you look at Republican pictures that there's no black or LGBTQ representatives much at all on there. I think it's for every state, red, blue, or whatever, you need to have a diverse group of representatives that kind of represent your area. We know that there's LGBTQ people across the country, and if we're not represented, we're not going to have um, a fair voice in our democracy. I agree 100%. Well, I think it's time for us to talk about the other side of this historic election, uh, Joseph R. Biden, former Vice President of the United States. Um, we are expecting at any moment, uh, and when I say any moment, I mean in this first week or two of August, a vice presidential um, running mate you know, announcement coming from Joe Biden. It's confusing, by the way. He was the vice president, but he has to pick VP. Is that not confusing? <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. We talked about it on the show a little bit yesterday with Michael. There is some great candidates out there. Um, I hope he does it sooner rather than later. They say he could keep it a secret until the convention, which is what's been done in the past. This is not an election like we've ever had in the past. Tell us now. I want to jump on board. I want yard signs. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yard signs. Oh, that's right. I've heard you talk about that before. See, I, I think of things, I, I'm an internet age baby, okay, in my senior year of high school, the internet was introduced to me, and they said, as your final, you have to send an email, and I couldn't figure it out. So, 24 <laughs> years on, I think of everything digital, but if you if you say there's an inherent political value in yard signs, I will believe you. Do you have any 
Is that true? The yard signs have a value? I believe so. I'm coming from a swing state of Ohio. I saw in the 2016 election that people were clamoring for them. I did phone banking out of my house. And people were were wanting to see. It. I mean, especially in an older electorate, which we see we tend to have here in Northeast Ohio. I think, as you say, in in more younger, more affluent areas, digital age is the way to go. So they're looking at Facebook ads, looking at Twitter ads, looking at TikTok ads. But in your older demographics, I think yard signs are a visual um, representation. It kind of keeps it in people's minds. And I think uh, yard signs are a good indicator. Um, so I know we talked before about how, you know, Biden gave that presser and some very savvy photographers got a photograph of his notes. Part of me wonders, by the way, if that's really accidental. Like, hmm, let me turn the notes where photographers can get a clear and readable shot of it. I don't know if that's a strategy. But that Kamala Harris, there were there were talking points defending Kamala Harris, but there are other candidates. There are women of color. I believe Elizabeth Warren is still in consideration. Scott, can I ask you about Susan Rice? Susan Rice, um, of course, is going to be a potentially controversial pick because of her role in Benghazi. You know that's something the Republicans will push hard on. Don't any one of these candidates have the potential to face opposition from the other side? So there's a CNN article out titled The One Mistake That Joe Biden Cannot Make, and part of it has to do with confidence, whether that candidate will support his leadership style. What do you think about the importance of him picking a VP uh, contender, and do you have any thoughts on where they might even be leading at this point? I think a vice president pick will only help him. It will not hurt him just the degree that it will help him. I think some will help him more than others because people are really voting for the presidency. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for the president. A vice president pick um, is maybe a little more important with Biden because he is a little older in age and people are looking down the road a bit maybe. But my personal opinion is that vice president picks only help exponentially up. So some people might have no effect. Some people might have a big effect. I don't see a lot of negative effect on anyone. There is going to be, we talked about it yesterday, there is going to be some negative advertising on whoever he picks. As you said, Susan Rice has Benghazi problems. We have the um, representative from California now that's getting some issues with things she's talked about in the past over Cuba and different things. So they're going to find something to pick on anybody. But I just think it's going to be what they bring to the table. I, I think Stacey Abrams is a huge plus as far as what she brings to the table, um, as far as votership goes. Uh, I don't think she's the most qualified of all the candidates, but I think she brings a lot of votes. So that's what I look for. I look for what they can add to the ticket. I don't think anyone's going to subtract more than another, personally. Very good. Um, I'm just going to highlight from the CNN piece. It says, getting the vetting right is an important test of competency. In this election cycle, Biden is running as a candidate who won't make the mistakes the Trump administration made from day one. 
messing up the VP would seriously undermine the whole competency narrative. So, Scott, I don't understand. I, I actually do have some advisors on the other side of the aisle. <laughs> you heard it here for, first. I admitted it on this show. And they constantly talk crap. They talk shit about Joe Biden to me. And I don't get it, man. I, I When I think of Joe Biden, I think of him as being part of the amazing Obama administration, which to me was the eight greatest political years of my life. I thought Barack Obama was the greatest president of my lifetime. So to me, Joseph Biden is inextricably linked to the Barack Obama presidency. So am I just dreaming? Is, is Biden a damaged goods candidate? I mean, are we looking at a potential, you know, not the same level of Hillary Clinton, of course, but why is Biden so hated and so controversial? Well, it's, I think it's just the political climate right now. I think that this Trump administration has so demonized Barack Obama by turning back all of his executive orders, by doing everything they can to disparage him at every point, that he has been demonized in the Republican Party. Um, in the Democratic Party, I don't know as much. I'm not sure if his brand has been damaged as much as they think. I think uh, I think there people do have some issues. Everyone has some issues with their candidates. Um, but I think that the really vitriol you see towards Biden is primarily from the Republican side of the aisle. And that's just because, in my opinion, of the demonization that we have seen of everything that Obama stands for. And now for the last year, they have been linking. It's not the Obama administration anymore. It's the Obama-Biden administration. If you listen to any Republican talking point, it's not the Obama administration. It's the Obama-Biden administration. They're trying to tie him to everything that Trump has undone for the last three years. So that's where I think it's coming from. I don't think it's coming from the Democratic side of the aisle as much as vitriol. But there is a lot of it on the Republican side. All right, my friend, we have to wrap it up. We are definitely running out of time today. Guys, it is Election Day, as we talked about with Sean, in quite a few states. I believe it's five states today. Pennsylvania, just uh, or Michigan, just to the north of me, definitely. So uh, get out there and vote, vote, vote. Brandon, you get the last word, my friend. As we near closer to this monumental election, it is so important that you register to vote. Make sure that you are confirmed registered to vote, whether that be vote by mail or in person. The stakes couldn't possibly be higher. Please, I'm begging you to vote. I'm not telling you who to vote for or what to vote. Just vote. Exercise your constitutional rights, please. Amen. All right. And with that, guys, we are out of here. We will be here every day, Monday through Friday, counting down these last 100 days, 5 o'clock Pacific, 8 o'clock Eastern time. Please follow us on our social media. Uh, we are at Last 100 Days Pod on Twitter and Instagram. That's last, the number 100 Days Pod. Give us a follow, and uh, we appreciate it. We'll talk to you next time. This is Scott and Brandon. We're out of here.